My maiden name is Esther Moon Quevedo. And my name, my name is Esther Brooks. I'm from Barcelona and I'm married to Arthur. We met 30 years ago. What day? What day? July 14th. 1988. Exactly right. Yeah. Bastille Day. Bastille Day. In France. In France. How long have we been married? 27 years. That's good. Yeah. We passed the first test. Mm-hmm. We got the number right. <laughs> it's it's we, like we I doubt it for a second. <laughs> Hi, I'm Arthur Brooks, and this is The Arthur Brooks Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Welcome to Season 2 of the podcast. This season, we're going to be talking about the theme of love, why we need more of it, and how to get it in our lives. You just heard from my wife, Esther, because in this episode, we're going to talk about romance and risk. But through the rest of the season, we're going to look at other loves, the things that we love, like our work and our country, and the people we love, like our friends. And we'll even talk about the love of the divine. And then we'll talk about loving our enemies, why we should do that, of course, but just as importantly, how we can do that. Love is what sustains us. It determines and denominates a lot of our happiness. We need it. We want it. The trouble is, we don't always think deeply enough about how to get it. And as a result, we often feel like we don't have enough of it. So I hope you'll listen, and I hope you'll get in touch. On Twitter, I'm at Arthur Brooks, or email us at arthurbrookshow at voxmedia.com. Well, we were in a music, in a brass festival. We were both musicians at the time. He played the horn and I played the trumpet. At this, it was at this school, this boarding school, where the, where the brass festival was being held in Dijon, outside of Dijon. And he was on tour and I was there because I wanted to uh, meet with this trumpet player, American trumpet player, really good player, and I wanted to learn from that guy. And uh, we met there. I don't remember, but we got there and they introduced us. They put us all up on stage and I was standing up on the stage for the introduction and you were standing in the audience. I remember looking at you saying, oh man, she's so pretty. Um, I really want to meet her. And uh, everybody there was Spanish, French, and we were all kind of like hanging out and and these Americans, and they made them stand in front of everybody so that everybody would see them and say hello to the Americans. So I remember that. And so afterward, we were in this bar. Remember that bar that we used to hang out in? Yeah. That, it was a week that we were there together. And so I, and, and you were there, and so I made a beeline over to you to talk to you, and I realized that you didn't speak a single word of English. But I saw you talking in French to somebody. So I went to one of my friends that I was there with, and I said, I don't speak any French. This girl doesn't speak any English. I don't know where she's from. Um, I want to tell her something. I want to start talking to her. I got to kind of break the ice. And he said, what do you want to say? And I said, I don't know. Um, how about you are very beautiful? He's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so he, you know, he speaks a little bit of French and he teaches me to say, vous êtes très belle, which is so lame, not just because it's, it's lame per se, but because 
It's the formal tense. I mean, you'd never go to a girl your own age and say, you know, you, madam, are very beautiful. You'd never talk that way. But I did, and you looked at me like I was the biggest idiot. Okay, so now let's be honest. I I pretended it was really an idiotic thing for you to say, mm. but uh, I didn't really think that I liked it, of course. You know, when you are young and this American guy and you're a Spaniard, you've never really talked to an American and comes to you and, and he says something like that. You like that. So, so you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't have contempt no, for me? No, you know, for, I didn't have contempt for you. Um, I pretended to have contempt for you, but, you know, and it worked. You know, by the way, I'm kind of figuring that maybe we'll go out on a couple of dates. I probably will never see her again, but I got to take my shot. And, and so I went home and I, I called my dad. I'd known this person for a week. We didn't speak a word of the same language. And I said, Dad, I think I met the girl I'm going to marry. And he said, uh, great, great. Um, I can't wait to meet her. And, and, um, and I said, well, there's a problem. Actually, there's three problems. The, the first is that um, she lives in another country. The second is that she doesn't speak a word of English. And the third is she has no idea she's going to marry me yet. I really felt that when I was with you, that I was at home. It was, it, was a, it was a feeling of being at home, and I couldn't explain why. So um, the moment I got home, I just started planning my trip to see you. And I was a poor musician, so, and my only possessions were a car, a, a very old car, and a trumpet. And, I lived in New York City. And he lived in New York City at the time. And so what I did is, first thing, I started taking English classes. And then the, the next thing is I sold my car and I sold my trumpet. I mean, I was a trumpet player, okay? But I, I started telling everybody that I wanted to go to New York because my trumpet was not good and I needed a new trumpet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Did of course. Did your parents believe this? No, my parents, nah, yeah, they knew. But, but you know, I would not want to accept because I was this strong, independent woman and I'm not going to go after a guy, you know. So, um, but I wanted a new trumpet from New York. So then when I sold my car and my trumpet, I bought a ticket to go to New York. But so there was kind of like a, a dual thing going on. I, I really wanted to be with you. But yeah. I, on the other hand, it's like, what am I doing? I'm going to New York. I don't know anybody there. And I remember that first time I did a flight like over the ocean and we landed in New York. And I remember sitting in the airplane and thinking, I hope he's there. I hope he's there. This is really crazy what I'm just doing. And um, and I remember coming out of the whatever, the the costumes, and he was there. And we spent three weeks together, and it was awesome. We traveled up and down the East Coast a little bit and got to yeah. know each other. And and then you left. You went back home, and you'd made this big entrepreneurial move, man. It was it was it was unbelievable. I couldn't I couldn't. I mean, I'd never seen anybody with that with that kind of courage, that sort of guts. I thought to myself, huh, next move's mine. 
And I basically took a job in Barcelona without telling you that I was going to move there. Part of it, part of me was afraid that you were going to f- get kind of freaked out. It's <laughs> like, wait a second, I came and visited you in New York, and now you're moving to my city? I mean, what are your intentions here? My intention was to marry you. Uh, and But, I, you know, I had to be had to be cool about it. You know, something was pushing us to be together. I was so happy. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. I'm still so happy that that, that, that worked out. It's amazing. It's amazing. There was fear, but it was a very rational fear. It was not a deep fear. It was, it was kind of like everybody was telling me, "Why are you crazy?" And, and and then I was thinking, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, really. I think this is a little crazy." But I mostly I was not afraid uh, because the desire was really big, like to to be to go home. It's a lot better to get rejected than to just be there waiting like a mushroom, right? Or waiting for for the right time. Sorry, I don't mean to be like... Like a mushroom? (laughs) Like a mushroom. (laughs) So, you know what I mean? I think think that's what we're supposed to do. I think... Uh, the well, how do you say the brave person is not the one that has no fear, but the one that is able to get over that fear or 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 in spite of the fear, act courageously, right? So I think like the way we act now, everything is too sh- sure and everything is too settled and everything is too perfect all the time, and there is no room for risk um, at all levels. Um, but especially at the level of, of connection, human connection with the couple or, or even friendship. Uh, like I think that's why we are made to connect with other human beings. So I think that what I want to say, my point is there is, there is fear, um, but you need to, I mean, that's what makes things exciting, right? You know, if you were like, oh, that's sure. Then how how exciting is that? Hmm. And if things doesn't don't go well, well, too bad. You tried, but then when you die, like they always say, when you die, you're not going to say, "I wish what would have happened, right?" If I had done it, no, you, I've tried, and it, well, it's okay. But I follow my in, my instincts, and I followed that passion. Wait, the story has a better ending than you think. I bought a trumpet <laughs> in New York at Jardinelli. Yeah. My mother was probably, like, crying to sleep or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> now I'm paying for that, for all those years, all those things I did to my yeah, mother. Yeah, no, because now yeah. we're teenage kids. Yeah. You know, we live in this this fear that our kids are going to, you know, run to Europe in search of young love or something horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 54 years old, and almost everybody my age has a story like that. Maybe not as insane as that, um, but everybody my age had huge risks because they fell in love, and 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 sometimes it was a miserable disaster, and sometimes it worked out and had a huge payoff, like in my life. 
But everybody went in big on something. I, I know a lot of people in their 20s and 30s, a lot of millennials, and I tell them that story, and they act as if I were just out of my mind or just really unbalanced to do something like that. So I have this hypothesis, which is that the, the real difference is generational. The real difference is that people these days, young people, don't take risks in love, that everything's safe, that everybody's matched, that they date in such a way to find somebody who's such a perfect match in, in college and on dating websites where you sort each other to make sure if you're a Democrat, you don't have to date a Republican and you make somebody and you say, well, I'm really into you know, men or women who look a certain way, and then you can sort them without even knowing them as people. And as such, there's less risk. There's more of an aversion to risk. That's less entrepreneurship in the love market. And I have another hypothesis, not just that young people are less entrepreneurial when it comes to love. My second hypothesis is that it's bad. It's bad for them, that they're less likely to fall in love. They're less likely to be happy. And the result is that their lives are not going to be as good. Is that true? We're heading into a break now, but when we come back, I want to tell you about somebody I met who is what I call a romantic entrepreneur. He took a huge risk in love on my advice. And you know what? In the eyes of some, it could be described as a cataclysmic disaster. But in my own eyes, there's considerable silver lining. Stay tuned after the break. My name is Romel Nicholas. When Romel and I first met, he was working as a policy advisor for Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah. So you and I met in the spring of 2017. That's right. That's right. Um, I was coming to speak to this, uh, Senator Hatch's staff. That's right. Pretty big staff, as a matter of fact. Yeah. And almost everybody is a 20-something or at least early 30-something. It's, the hill's a young place. It is. And uh, I, I did a little bit of background before I came and talked to you guys. And I, I learned that almost everybody's single in this group. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, what can I say to this group that might be edifying? I mean, look, you guys know everything about politics and you mm-hmm. think about policy all day long. So I was, at the time, I was reading this study that was kind of blowing my mind. It was by the economist at the University of Chicago, Stephen Levitt. Mm-hmm. And he was asking how people make really hard decisions where, where one possibility is to do something that's high risk and high payoff mm-hmm. and the other is less risky but lower payoff. But you can't decide. They're both decent ideas. Mm-hmm. But... And what he found was, because he, he asked a big group of people, 26,000 people, if he could make the decision for them mm. by flipping a coin, which is crazy. <laughs> I mean, this is a great country where 26,000 people are, are going to let a, an economist, yeah. the University of Chicago, make a life decision for them. <laughs> but they couldn't decide because they were in pain because it's so hard to make a decision. Right. He, he wanted to know whether or not the yes, go for it, the mm. risky one, is a better decision with respect to your happiness. And he found, and this is what I came and talked to you guys about, was he found that when you make a risky, high-payoff decision, you're more likely to be happy than when you choose the less risky, lower-payoff option. And that's what I told you guys about in the context of personal entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and treating your life like a startup. Right. The single biggest decision that people make is usually in their romantic lives. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people let the pitch sail over the plate. They don't take the swing. And, and Levitt's paper, it seemed to me, and I told you guys, was 
are you not telling somebody about your feelings? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to go for it mm-hmm. uh, because you're more likely to be happy. And that's what I came in and, and told you guys. Right. And uh, what was your state of mind when I came and gave that talk? What was going on in your life? Yeah, well, you know, single then, single now. But uh, I remember there's a gr- uh, young woman that we can refer to as Jane. And it was someone uh, with whom I'd been calling, texting, talking with in the aftermath of graduating from college. She had been in a relationship for quite some time with, if the record may show, a guy of good character. I have respect for him. Um, I knew that they had gone through some sort of breakup. And I guess I'd been weighing a little bit about whether or not I should, you know, I I guess uh, tell her how I feel. So when you came in and spoke with us, you had struck a chord with me. I hadn't purchased a ring, but uh, nor had I even ever taken her out on a date. But, uh, you know, at the expense of coming off as a little cheesy, uh, and I'm not even someone who necessarily believes in true love, so to say. That's something that I don't know that I'll ever have the answer to. But there are certain people, very few, that you kind of get a good feeling about. And uh, she was definitely one of them. I, uh, but you'd never told her? No. Why not? No. Well, I, you know, paralysis by analysis, you know, as they say, uh, pretty humiliating to get turned down. You so know. you were afraid? Oh, yeah. You were afraid. In other words, oh, yeah. you were taking the, the lower <laughs> payoff, lower risk Easy. option. You were going in, in Easy. your plan B. Uh, I had thought about you and the conversation you'd had because I was, I was thinking to myself, I really should say something to Jane. You know, I said, I really should tell her how I feel. What did I really have to lose other than whatever embarrassment is associated with rejection? What I will say to be uh, objectively honest is that meeting you when you spoke to Senator Hatch and his staff, that was not the eureka moment. The eureka moment was much later. (laughs) (laughs) I was spurred by an incredible coincidence, which was being on the flight. I go, so I'm supposed to go down to Cuba with four of my friends and uh, three of my buddies canceled the last minute. And if you're listening, I'll never forget it. And uh, so I end up spending two and a half, three days in Cuba alone in this villa. And so uh, I did a lot of thinking and uh, there's a big thunderstorm and a rainstorm at that time. Um, I had been uh, doing a little taste test of the Cuban rum. And, uh, you know, I had done a little taste test of the Cuban cigars and you can't help but to be put into a pensive mood when there's no one to talk with and you're all alone. Sure as you know it, uh, flying back from Cuba via Miami and who but Mr. Arthur Brooks is sitting a stone's throw from me on the flight. And I thought this is too weird. So I, I, you know, I remember we talked briefly on the flight and so forth. And um, first thing I did, I mean, I had been chewing on it, but the eureka moment was seeing you. Because yeah. I thought, this is too strange. So you told me about this, and, and you approached me on the plane, and you said, look, I heard that speech. Mm. And you gave me a cigar, too, which I really appreciate. <laughs> that, that was a nice touch. <laughs> and, and you said, look, there's this girl, Jane, and I really like her. I, I think I love her. And I've been reflecting on the speech that you gave about how you got to live your life like a startup. Yep. You got to take the shot. 
and I'm going to take the shot. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how it's going to turn out. Mm-hmm. And I remember I said the little prayer. I thought, oh, man. I mean, this is funny. When you're a social scientist, mm-hmm. like my own life is a social science experiment. You know, I've done the same yeah. thing. And, you know, just going for it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. So I know in my own life. Mm-hmm. But when you look when you look in the data and you're trying to translate it in a way that's going to help people, mm-hmm. and then somebody takes your advice, it gives you, it just catches you a little bit. It <laughs> Your heart skips uh, you know, five <laughs> or six beats. And I meet this young guy on the plane, and you tell me you're about to go do this. And boy, oh, boy. I, I, I got to tell you, I felt kind of nervous. <laughs> How's the plan going to go? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because, you know, <laughs> I felt like, hey, man, it's only a study. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> so I thought about it a little bit. And I thought about you, and I wondered what happened. And then I didn't see you for a while. That's a couple right. of months passed, or, or, or maybe more than that. And I saw you at a party here at mm-hmm. the American Enterprise Institute, and I recognized you, and I made a beeline over and I said, Hey, Romel. <laughs> hey, Romel, man. Did you go see Jane? Mm-hmm. So tell me what happened. Well, in the eyes of some, it could be described as a cataclysmic disaster. But in my own eyes, oh, no. there are there's considerable silver lining. I you know I had read her in. I think I had told her the day I was coming or something like that. And um, you know we had a really great night. I think it was like a margarita night. We kind of have a conversation, like a preliminary conversation, where I said something to the effect of like I came for you. That makes it sound a lot cooler than it probably came out. But I think the point came across. And, uh, you know, she had expressed that she was pretty happy about that or something. And I, I was feeling like a million bucks, right? Um, we had what we could call the talk. You know, I, I, I put my cards on the table. And again, it wasn't marriage proposal. I, I don't think I used the word love candidly. Um, but, you know, I basically said, I'm really serious about wanting to give this a shot if you're interested in giving this a shot. But, you know, we hadn't made out or kissed or whatever young people say, you know, this was, this was a cold, hard risk. And, uh, she was kind of processed, you know, that's a lot to take in or something. And, you know, I think she had made some, you know, wise beyond her years comment, like, Hey, maybe we should talk about this tomorrow, but all good, you know, let's continue to hang out. So we're still, you know, we're still friendly, having a good time. Then, then her former, significant other who also lives in Philadelphia. Her ex-boyfriend. Shows up. Now, based on a lot of circumstantial factors, which I have examined at length, let me rest assured, (laughs) I don't think that she invited him, nor do I think he knew that either of us were there. And I knew him from college. I knew that if I saw him and I was in Philadelphia and didn't give him a heads up or something, that'd be a little weird in the first place, which would immediately trigger him maybe being suspicious of what I was doing in Philadelphia. And then to add a further layer, if he saw me there with Jane, I knew that this was going to be a bad situation pretty quickly. So I approached him and I forget exactly what happened, but basically offered to buy him a drink and said, hey, this is, uh, is going to not really turn out ideally. And I explained a little bit of the situation at a very top level. And so I, I 
said my goodbyes. Um, and, uh, you know, that they, I guess, proceeded to start hanging out, you know, the, the ex and Jane and, um, you know, the next day she sent a pretty polite message that was like, Hey, especially after everything you said, I know that that must've been a tremendously strange position to be in. Um, you know, I ended up having a conversation with him and we're going to get back together. So it was just a knife, right? Just a knife. So it wasn't I, just no to Rommel. Yeah. It was no to Rommel and yes to the export. Yes. Simultaneously. Um, you know, when that when that nail in the coffin hits and you get a text message like that, I mean, I think we all know how that feels. But it's uh it's time to move on moment and uh, you lick your wounds a little bit and you know, you it's not a great feeling in that moment. You know, it's easy to reflect on now, but uh were you sorry that you told her at that moment? I don't know. I don't know that it, you feel stupid at first. You know, you feel really dumb. That's actually what you were afraid of the, the whole time, right? Yeah, you were, you were, it was exactly what had held you back was, was what happened, right? Right. And uh, maybe that's, you know, the part of it too is in the business world. People don't want to say they oversaw a failed enterprise or they, you know, it's, that's, yeah, I guess you feel you feel like a knucklehead, um, but as you're able to reflect on it more, it, uh, it's a little bit less so. I want you to weigh in on something in the context of this experience that you described to me. You know, as a person, I notice, you know, I'm in my early 50s, and it seems to me, as I talk to people who are in their 20s, that they're way more risk-averse than I was mm-hmm. at that age. Uh it may be a misremembering, but it seems to me that we we went for it. But yeah. I feel like young people are more risk averse, and and I've got data too as a social scientist, not just as a, as a guy, but as a social scientist. My my data show me that that young people are less likely to take risks in love, and they're less likely to take risks in moving, and and even a little less likely to take risks in the job market. So when when we're talking about love, do you believe that people are? taking less risk and, and what you did, do you think it's actually kind of unusual? Well, only everybody in their own heart knows how unusual what I did was, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I, any relationship you're in or any dating situation, you can compare that to your next swipe, you know, or in the dating app world, the availability of option B, C, D, E is so, readily available when 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 there's an abundance of other options you don't need to endure some of the challenges that may be associated with really investing in someone i love your hypothesis that dating app entrepreneurship is inhibiting dating entrepreneurship (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty ironic you know that was it and you know for some personal reasons you know i just made a decision that I wouldn't be talking with her anymore. In any and you haven't spoken with her since? No, no, no. So and, this uh, is hard because, you know, when you're in your 20s, this, I mean, this happens, right? Yeah. And I didn't know this and I run into you mm. and I ask you this. I said, how'd it go? Yeah. And you're like, didn't go. <laughs> she shot me down. And my, I said what anybody would say in this position, which yeah. is, I'm sorry, Ramel. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And 
you said it's for the best. Mm-hmm. And you said you're glad you did it anyway. Sure. Tell me about sure. that. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the immediately obvious thing is the closure, right? And But the other thing is that maybe whatever the social scientists say is that when looking at risk from the, what do they say, the romantic entrepreneurial lens, that there are victories or there are gains associated with loss that are not immediately obvious. You know, it's not, if you take a risk, you win or you lose. In my experience, it was like, you either win or you lose win, you know, or whatever. Tell me about the lose win. Because, you know, I talk to entrepreneurs in business all the time. One of the things that they're most grateful for Mm -hmm. are their failures. Sure. Because they're not failures. Mm -hmm. They learn from those things and they don't wonder for the rest of their lives what would have happened if they had taken that shot. So tell me what the lose win means for you in this case. Yeah, the, the, the lose win is, you know, you shoot your shot. And you you don't, I mean, I haven't been plagued by the question that I had been plagued by when I was in Cuba, that I've been plagued by when you first spoke to me of that kind of festering question of, you know, like if, if there's somebody in your world that you have a crush on, basically, and in the case of me, it was a significant one. It's harder to invest yourself in that next date on Friday night you know, it's harder to um, to want to meet other people or to, you know, be as forthcoming or open and honest as you should be with a new relationship if you feel like you're, you know, cloistering certain aspects of your personality that you're reserving for that interaction of the most intense, you know, degree. Now, you know, I haven't met anybody since then. I've still been a little bit of a walking dumpster fire in terms of my personal life, but uh, I've at least been able to try. And the reason why any relationships that I've had since then have failed hasn't been because of me not being able to invest myself because I'm holding out hope for something else. It's, it's, it was the right thing to do. It was, it was, it was in the end, something I'm able to laugh it off or, um, you know, move on from. I guess the point I'm trying to get at is once you start taking one or two risks, the next one doesn't, you know, seem quite as frightening. That's great. I admire you a lot. Hey, thank you. It's uh, it's a mutually uh, shared feeling. I uh, appreciate you having me on. I appreciate uh, learning from you. It's uh, It's been fun to, uh, to reminisce a little bit. I predict great things in Romel's life. We've been talking about romantic entrepreneurship and taking risk and love for my generation and for millennials. But what about the generation that comes after? I'm talking about people born between 1995 and 2012, the so-called Gen Z or iGen named after the iPhone. It's a very different story when it comes to this generation. When we come back after the break, we're going to talk to the woman who named that generation iGen and who's done groundbreaking research into their approach to risk, romantic and otherwise. What a delight it is to welcome Jean Twangy to the podcast. 
Uh, Jean is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. She has a PhD in psychology from the University of Michigan. And uh, she's been well-known in the psychology profession for a long time, but became more of a household uh, scholar relatively recently because of her big best-selling book, iGen, Why Today's Super-Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, and Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. <laughs> Surprising on every count. Welcome to the podcast, Jean. Thank you. You write about people who are much younger than we are. You write about iGen. What's, what's iGen? So iGen is the post-millennial generation, those born 1995 and later. So it's iGen with a little I, like iPhone or iPad, because they're the first generation to spend their entire adolescence with smartphones, and that's had a big effect on their lives. And so pervasive was this technology that you have, you have labeled. I mean, one of the great things about your research is it's been your research has had such a profound market impact that you've been able to to name a generation. Gene, it must be great. It must be so cool to name a generation. I mean, you, this name really stuck that you gave it, and you and you named it around a particular product, which was it's basically the iPhone, right? Yeah, because the iPhone was the first smartphone, and you know, I sh- I should I should note that it's it's not set in stone that this post millennial generation will be called iGen. I'm convinced that they are not going to be called Gen Z, which is the other name that's often applied to them, because if millennials are not Gen Y, which they're not, nobody calls them that anymore. If millennials aren't Gen Y, then calling the next generation Gen Z doesn't really make a lot of sense. So obviously, I, I hope that that iGen will will be the accepted name of the generation, but that that's still somewhat of an open question at this point. And what characterizes them, of course, is not the arbitrary year birth cutoff. It's something that was happening during that time. And that's, of course, what you write about in in this work on, on iGen and how they're different and, and, frankly, how they're not very happy and what we can do about that. So let's get into that a little bit. And then we're going to get into my main area of interest. Uh, we're going to talk about the love habits, the strange love practice. I feel like Margaret Mead, you know, in the South Pacific or something. <laughs> the strange love practices of, of the of the iGen generation that Gene Twenge has uncovered. Let's start off with a not not with the iGen book. Let's start with a with a paper you wrote in 2017 called "The Decline in Adult Activities Among U.S. Adolescents, 1976 to 2016." But this is a really fascinating study because you looked at eight and a half million people, teenagers, between 13 and 19, and you saw some big changes in the behavior of young people. Tell me what you found that really struck you about how young people uh, over that period that you were looking at, how, how behavior was changing. Yeah, so I had been looking at how teens use their time in these two big data sets. One is of 8th graders, 10th graders, and 12th graders, a national survey that's done every year, and then another of entering college students, where the, the stuff on time use anyway goes back to the 1980s. Uh, and then the other survey goes back to the 70s. So started to notice some of these interesting trends around they weren't as likely to go out without their parents weren't as likely to have their driver's license by spring of their senior year in high school. Uh, They weren't as likely to have tried alcohol by that point or to go out on dates. Uh, And then there's another data set that has questions about sexual activity and high school students are now less likely to um, have had sex. So kind of across the board, what 
all those things have in common is that they're things that adults do and children don't. So they've historically been milestones of adolescence, and fewer teens are doing those. They're taking longer to grow up, taking longer to do these adult activities. And you know, sometimes I'm asked, well, is that the same thing as emerging adulthood or that you know, people are taking longer to get married and have kids? Well, that's about young adulthood, and that adulthood is slowed down. Here, this is a different question. It's about adolescence and how adolescence has slowed down because that's changed over the generations. It used to be, so my Gen X generation, um, there was certainly the aspect that we were extending adolescence into young adulthood, but we were also kind of beginning our adolescence at an earlier age, especially in terms of sexual activity and some of these other things. But what's happened now is the entire developmental trajectory slowed down. Kids are not as independent. Teenagers are not as independent or as likely to do these adult things. And then young adults are less likely to be independent and um, do the things we traditionally associate with adulthood, like marriage and parenthood and settling Hmm. into a permanent career. Hmm. And you're finding... I mean, the the theory is, of course, I mean, we're we're doing all these things on purpose. The theory is that we're going to put more human capital into each kid. We're going to invest more in each kid. We're going to take care of them more. And the result is they're going to be better off. But you're not finding that they're better off when it comes to life satisfaction. You're actually finding that teenagers today are less happy, right? That is true. But there's, of course, a lot of cultural factors going into those trends. And we should probably, you know, talk a little bit about what those trends are first. What are these trends? You know, this was one of the unusual results, which made me realize there was a a new uh, generation that had arrived a little sooner than we all thought, that in the data around 2011 or 2012, that all of a sudden, more teens were starting to say that they felt lonely and left out, that they felt like they couldn't do anything right or that their life wasn't useful. And those are classic symptoms of depression. And then more serious issues like suicide and self-harm and clinical-level depression all started to spike right around that time. And that is a little bit later than the the trends in growing up slowly, which began instead in the late 1990s, although they did continue during that period. So my best guess, given that time sequence of things starting around 2011 or 2012, is you see that um, teen depression starts to spike and happiness and life satisfaction and self-esteem start to suddenly go down right at the time that smartphones become common. And I don't think that that's a coincidence because there were some ripple effects too. As smartphones became common, teens also started to sleep less and they started to spend less time with their friends face to face. So I want to talk about the relationship part of it in general. So you, you've written a lot about teenagers, and I've done some writing about people in their 20s. So I've written more about millennials than the the post-millennial generation. And I'm finding that young people in their 20s today are less likely to take risks in love. Now, what really attracted me to your work is because you're showing me the roots of that in the generation right behind the millennials. Tell me how you're finding that that millennial, post-millennials, the iGen, are are less likely to be romantically involved, certainly than people think, and, and, and less likely than, than you and I were when we were that age. 
Yeah, iTunes is very risk averse overall. Um, you know, in their attitudes, even as teens, they're less likely to say that they want to take risks or do dangerous things. You know, safety conscious is not something you usually associate with uh, teens, but iGen is more that way than previous generations were. And that extends to their sex lives and their love lives. So I already mentioned teens are less likely to have sex, but there's another surprising trend in there. It's not just teens, it's young adults as well. And this one was surprising to me and everybody else um, in looking at data from a survey of adults, uh, the general social survey of um, American adults 18 and over. It's done every two years. And they've asked about number of sexual partners, current sexual activity. And if you look at people in their early 20s from uh, the millennial and iGen generation compared to Gen Xers and boomers, people in their early 20s are less likely to be sexually active. And then if you kind of take everybody together and use some statistical techniques to control for age and basically try to predict um, when millennials and iGeners are the same age you know, as Gen Xers and boomers are now, how many sexual partners are likely to have at that point given you know, their behavior up to now, they actually have fewer sexual partners. So you find in the general social survey that, that you, people today are less likely to be romantically and sexually active in their early 20s than Gen Xers were in their early 20s and baby boomers were in their early 20s. And it goes outside of the, the, the range of your data to say exactly why. But you've, you're a psychologist. You talk to a lot of people. You've seen a lot of data sets. And so, so hypothesize a little bit. Why are iGen and, and, to a large extent, millennials less likely to be entrepreneurial in love than past generations? So I think I think some of it very well might come down to that risk aversion and being more safety conscious. Because when I did interviews for the book, it was very interesting to me. iGeners introduced me in a new concept. They called it emotional safety. So they're not just concerned with physical safety. They're also concerned with emotional safety. So not being upset, for example. And that wasn't something I was familiar with. And there were several iGeners who told me that they thought staying emotionally safe was just as important, if not more important, than physical safety. They also found it more anxiety-provoking. There was one young man who said, well, you, know, you can always take steps to protect yourself physically. But emotional safety is harder because when you're talking to someone, you never know what they're going to say to you. And I, I found that absolutely fascinating that there is this idea of like that interacting with people is inherently dangerous. That, I think that's... Um, a somewhat unique um, viewpoint, but fairly, you know, at least more common among iGen than uh, previous generations. And I think that that comes out in their romantic and sexual lives. So I think there's probably a bunch of different things going on. You know, overall, as communication has moved online, when they're not getting together with each other in person, then they're not as likely to form a romantic relationship or to have sex. So that's clearly playing a role as well, that interactions moved online and you might be able to send a, a sext or a nude picture, but you're not actually having sex. There's uh, at least some young people who say that they feel a lot more of social anxiety and just anxiety and social interactions. They feel more, feel more comfortable sending a text because they can think about what they're going to say and they can moderate their reaction to what someone else says to them. And the same isn't true, face-to-face, real-time interaction. And that certainly might be one of the roots of why 
they're not as willing to take risks in law. The, the reason you've done this analysis is not simply to describe the world. You, you've done this analysis because you think it's a problem and you think it's interesting and something that we should be paying attention to so that we can change our behavior. So before I ask you to say what we should be doing differently as professors, what we should be doing differently as parents, as bosses, as people who are in positions of authority over young people that 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 should be taking more entrepreneurship in their lives and in their love – what do you think if we don't, if we're on the current trajectory, what do you think things are going to look like that are different now? And, and how, how does that keep you up at night? Well, the thing that concerns me the most is these mental health trends among teens and young adults. Because they're so pervasive. They show up among so many different indicators and surveys, but behaviors, feelings, everything is is just deteriorated since 2012, across the board. And, you know, every year I watch the data come out, every year they keep going up. They're not even plateauing. They just keep getting worse. And, I mean, we, we've, we have a pretty serious mental health crisis with teens and young adults now. And the problem with that is not, I mean, not only is that a problem now, it's a huge problem now. It's also a problem going forward because, Research in clinical psychology shows that the younger that you experience your first episode of depression, the more likely it is to happen again. So that we have this happening with iGen, that may mean their entire lives they're more likely, they'll be more likely to experience depression than previous generations were. And that is a pretty negative state of affairs for those individuals themselves, for their families, and for society as a whole. Hmm. So let's give some advice now. I, I realize you're not a clinical psychologist, but you know my guess is that you're pretty good at giving advice. Um, as a matter of fact, I know you are from your work. So first of all, advise me as a parent of teenagers. How should I be parenting my kids, specifically because in this episode we're talking about love. So talk to me about what I should be doing when they're teenagers such that they can have – great love lives. They're not getting it because of overprotection, because of screens, and because of this and because of that. So so tell me what I can do so that my kids can avoid the trap. So my first suggestion is going to sound counterintuitive, but I hope it'll make sense to you by the time I'm done, which is make sure your kids get enough sleep because not getting enough sleep is one of the biggest risk factors for depression and anxiety. The other thing is when people don't get enough sleep, they find it harder to control their impulses and they find it harder to exert self-control. And there's a bunch of really cool research in social psychology showing that not having enough self-control, like kind of having a, have, coming home at the end of a really tough day, that's often when people get into fights with their relationship partners. Hmm. Um, and then beyond that, in terms of the, the protection, you know, it, it is a tough balance, but I, I do think giving kids and teens those independent experiences helps them make better decisions. And that will probably help them make better decisions when it comes to their relationship partners. And, you know, there's different schools of thought in terms of, oh, you know, should you let them date? And, you know, should you set a certain age? I think having having relationships at a younger age, not necessarily sexual, but in terms of a romantic relationship, you gain experience and you learn how to do that um, in a way that can be really helpful. Now, advice for for our kids. Um, you know, my kids are growing into adulthood. What advice do you give them? Um, 
when they're going to college? Yeah, so I, g- I give a lot of talks to um, teens and, and young adults at middle schools and high schools and colleges. It's always an interesting conversation. So they're usually relieved when my advice is not, okay, give up your phone. But they are very receptive to the idea of, you know, you should use your phone for what it's good for and then put it down and go do other things. So that advice of two hours a day or less, that's one of the main things that that I tell them, um, that that will help them um, not just be able to kind of break their addiction with their phone, but have the time to have those face-to-face relationships, friendships, romantic relationships, and everything to put the time into those relationships that they deserve and that that can really improve their lives immeasurably. To have that face-to-face interaction, I mean, that's what makes us happy as human beings, to be loved. And that's not the same as getting a like on an Instagram post. You know, it's funny, when I talk to young people on campuses or people in their 20s who are relatively new in the workforce, they talk an awful lot about entrepreneurship, and that's that's big in our culture these days. Uh, who's going to have the next big startup? What is going to be? Tech, biotech, whatever. But that's really not the best basis of entrepreneurship. Startups, business school, commerce, that's a poor definition because it denominates the rewards of entrepreneurial activity in, in money and in companies and IPOs. You want to know what the real enterprise is? It's your life. That's where you have all of the resources under your disposal. That's where you have the adventure that really lies before you. You want to be an entrepreneur? Then take some risks, not with your money, certainly not with somebody else's money, but with your life. Now, what are you going to risk with your life? What's the currency of your life, of course? The currency of your life is not money. The currency of your life is is love. If you want to be a life entrepreneur, you got to take some risks in love. And if you don't do that, I don't care how many companies you start. I don't care what your grades were in your MBA program. You're not an entrepreneur. So, So here's the question I want to leave you with. Are you a life entrepreneur? The answer is yes. You need to give your heart away. Our team at AEI is CeCe Gallagher and Nathan Thompson. At Vox Media, Golda Arthur is senior producer, Jarrett Floyd is our engineer, and Nishath Kurwa is executive producer of audio. Our theme music is composed by Gautam Shrikashan. Please rate and review this podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. I'm sure you've got your own stories about taking risks and love, and I want to hear them. I'm at Arthur Brooks on Twitter if you can fit it into 280 characters or email me at Arthur Brooks Show at voxmedia.com. Thanks for listening.